This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. What if the best way to defend our faith can actually be found by visiting pre-modern North Africa? That's the premise of the latest book by the dynamic apologetics duo <laughs> of Josh Chatreau and Mark Allen. It's called The Augustan Way, Retrieving a Vision for the Church's Apologetic Work Witness, excuse me, published by Baker Academic. This is a special episode of Gospel Bound. I'm sure you're already seeing this. I normally record remotely from my office at Basin Divinity School, where I co-chair the advisory board and also serve as adjunct professor here in Birmingham, Alabama. But today I am still recording at Beeson, Birmingham, but I'm in studio at beautiful Samford University with Beeson's newest professor, Josh Chatreau. He serves as the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism and Cultural Engagement. And Josh is also an inaugural fellow with TGC's Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Josh, it's glad for you to, thankful for you joining me in person. We walk all the way across the courtyard, down a couple flights of stairs from our offices next to each other on the third floor of the South Paul, uh, South Tower of Divinity Hall. So just let me give you a little bit more background for the viewers, for the listeners here on the Augustan Way. But I want to discuss, I want to let listeners know that we're also going to be discussing one of your other new books. It's been a big year for you, John. Mm-hmm. Big books, big change. Um, that one is Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us into a Deeper Faith, which you wrote with Jack Carson for Brazos. Now, both books explore themes that not everyone would associate with apologetics. We often think of apologetics as rational, logical, individual proofs of Christian truth. But, Josh, you argue that today the question of Christianity's truth is closely bound up with the question of Christianity's goodness, and you build on this Augustinian theme of love. We desire to love and to be loved, and one reason, and, and our reason works toward what we think will ultimately make us happy. And you cast a vision in these books for churches as a place where we can work through our doubts, that churches should nurture apologists of virtue and skill through the ordinary means of grace. And I love this quote from the Augustan Way. You say this, the church counterforms us and re-aims our heart toward the kingdom that is to come, equipping us with the diagnostic tools to see into a society's idolatry and forming us into a source of healing and hope for our neighbors. I thought, Josh, that line also captures the vision that we have for the Keller Center as well. So thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. It's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, let's start with the Augustan Way. So you write that Augustine's Confessions is one of the treasures of Christian spirituality, but 
that it's rarely been mined for apologetics. What do you mean with that comment? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would just want to say that their scholars have pointed this out. Okay. Um, uh, Henry, uh, yeah, Chadwick points this out, who's uh, one of the, the great Augustine scholars and translators, and points out that there's an undercurrent throughout confessions. You have philosophers who are pointing out how confessions uh, could work like this in the ancient world. I think especially given we have more information about the ancient world, uh, Peter Brown, the great biographer, talks about when he came back uh, later, he wrote uh, his, his biography in the 1960s, it came out, he wrote a second edition, and he has uh, two additional chapters he puts, puts on there about new evidence and, and new lines of kind of thought. And one of the things he brings that out is that actually during Augustine's lifetime, there was a lot more kind of um, Christianity wasn't cemented as much. And he didn't have the authority that Brown, he says he, he kind of wrote with Augustine has this, you know, bishop kind of in the mind of almost a medieval bishop in, in Christendom. But Augustine really had to persuade. And one of the things is you see this happening in confessions, and I think this is what Chadwick was bringing out, is that he starts off his intellectual journey with this existential question of the heart. And so he sees, Augustine sees actually this inner intellectual quest, and it's a very, in some sense, intellectual quest bound up with questions of the heart, bound up with his restlessness. But it's also a story that I think can kind of map onto the deconstruction stories that we're having today, because Augustine, of course, grows up in the church with Monica, and Monica is a devout mom <clears throat> taking little Augie to church. <laughs> and but he's also in this kind of um, backwoods of the empire in a kind of fundamentalist kind of community, authoritarian bishops, rules for everything, very little interpretations of everything. And so very quickly, he he has his own coming of age story. Oh. And he's wanting to adopt a kind of ancient, kind of for us, weird rationalism, but there still is a kind of rationalism that he adopts when he converts, or at least uh, is intrigued and spends nine years with the Manichees. And so what you actually have in Confessions is he's at the beginning, he's trying on all of these, yes, philosophical systems, but he's also trying on these different ways of life. And he comes to a point where uh, he sees the intellectual holes in them. He has stepped inside of them. And he also sees the existential holes in them. And they're both combined, not in simply, you know, you mentioned our work is, uh, you know, typical apologetics is uh, dealing with logic and, and arguments and so is ours so is augustine he wants those too but he sees this integration of what our heart wants what are what we're really made for and our rationality and he weaves those together and and with spirituality uh, which is something that's often not brought up in modern apologetics that is woven through the ancients as they're they're not afraid uh to to mix these as we sometimes want to keep apart for various reasons today. But so all of those reasons, I would say, uh, retrieving confessions as a kind of apologetic, as well as doing other things, I think is really helpful for us today. How long is this book? I'm going to grab your copy yeah, yeah. here for anybody who wants to be able to see it, the Augustine way. Um, how long has this book been on your mind? 
Well, so uh, this is the first time anyone's <clears throat> called um, uh, referred to me and Mark as a dynamic duo. So we <laughs> appreciate that. How many books and encyclopedias have you done together? At we've done point? two. We've done two. Okay. And so our first one, <laughs> Apologetics at the Cross, is we 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 got to the end of that. And one of the things we wanted to do, which we saw as missing in apologetic textbooks, is to have a couple chapters on the great tradition. Uh, seeing that as really an important part of understanding where we are with modern apologetics. And in doing that, we kind of had a conversation about Augustine. What, what is Augustine doing? So this was we were writing around 2016. And, and it, it had to be kind of left because we, we had a textbook to write, so we couldn't just spend our time in Augustine. But we had these intuitions. And after we got done and the dust had settled and uh, people we weren't expecting, um, kind of said, yes, we're on board with this project, this book you wrote. We said, okay, let's now explore Augustine a bit more and see what we might find. And our intuitions about what Augustine was doing in, in City of God and Confessions in particular have, has come through in this book. And we were, so we did a couple of year dive. So what was your question? How long? We've been thinking about it in some sense to, since 2016, but the actual writing process took two and a half years. And both of these books, I want to mention, have come out of deep friendships. Yeah. Uh, Mark and Jack are two of my best friends. And so to write a book with your best friend, by the end, you're going to strangle them and never talk to them again, <laughs> or you're going to have a deeper friendship. It's kind of like marriage, but that's another story, another book. I'm sorry, Tracy, you know what I mean by this. But um, And so we've come out of those these books still really, really good friends. And and there's a, there's a, if you know anything about Augustine, friendship was a part of Augustine's was so important to Augustine. And I do say that I maybe maybe I should mention this now is that sometimes with apologetics and apologists, we can kind of be these, you know, uh, we can be formed to think we've got to stand alone. We've got to be these yeah. superstars. A lone ranger mentality yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And I, and I think there's something um, unhealthy if we're formed in that way. And so the right kind of friends who will say, Josh, that was a junk paragraph actually helps in a book and it also helps in life. And um, so I'm thankful to have written this with, with two friends. Well, it's worth noting because as a scholar, that's one of the ways that you do stand out is you do a lot of collaborative projects with folks. And so that helps give us a little bit of a vision behind what you're, what you're doing there and why. Um, I think if you and I did a book together at this point, we would just have a lot of things that we argue about, disagree about in there. So let's jump to one of those. Yeah. Um, Make your case for why we should be learning more for our own Christian situation today from the fourth and early fifth centuries as opposed to the second. And I'll just go ahead and say that on my side, I've got, got Tim Keller, I got Carl Truman, so I've yeah. got some got some heavies on there. But you disagree, so make the case for the fourth and early. Fifth well, century. see, this is a revelation for me in the midst of the podcast because I I was sure that Tim was on my side before he passed and. <laughs> Had embraced the August well, way, and then, and now, and I thought I had convinced you. I've, I've given up. Probably. I'm dramatizing it a little bit. No, I think. Well, you can just explain yeah, why yeah. you've made that argument. I think part of what I mean, Hurtado's work on the second century yeah. was a really big deal to Tim. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of natural parallels because you don't go back to the first because the first is a totally different world. The early church, the I mean, Pentecost explosion, all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, the second, you do get to a position where the Christians are in a minority, but they're not a tiny group yeah. anymore. 
they're not controlling everything. They're a tiny group. So I think that's one reason why a lot of people see from Hurtado's work and others of this dynamic of, of their prophetic minority that's having a lot of success, but they're still very distinctly a minority. They're not in control of anything. So for a post-Christendom environment, it seems like the second century yeah. would commend itself as opposed to, but I guess it depends on where we are because Augustine, of course, one of his great contributions, he's writing in a the, the decline of the, an eclipse of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be somewhat analogous to our situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just want to affirm what you've said is that, you know, I think every century of the church we, we should learn from, right? So it's not as if the second century or the third century has nothing to teach us. Yeah. Um, and so I, I recognize we might be, you know, you know uh, making too big of a thing out of this. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I've heard a lot in what we're saying in the book is we've heard a lot in recent days about like we've got to return and probably from Tim and, and Carl and other people We've got to we've got to re, kind of return to this second century mindset. But if so, there's a couple things going on. One is where are we today in the West? Yeah. And um, I think one of the, when I was right, well, writing this, it was a few years ago, and I had just I mean, in my mind was Trump holding up a Bible. Yeah. And then a little bit later, in front of the church, we remember that scene. It's one of See, the right, iconic. in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. And then, and well, I'm processing that. That and then, and then Biden, um, who has his inauguration, and he's quoting the Bible, yeah. and he's quoting Augustine. Um, yeah. And and then you have the Super Bowl commercial, the Bruce Springsteen commercial, with kind of this cross, and it has these all these echoes of, I mean, explicit. Allusions to Christianity, not to mention the "He Gets Us" campaign. Yeah, well, that's well. so. Yeah. But what I'm what I'm saying is that um, although we can look at the last you know a hundred years and and say, well, institutionally, we just Christians don't have the power in this way that we once did. I agree with Ross Douthat, who says, you know, still given the weaknesses, we still have Christians and the church have an enormous amount of institutional. You know, leverage still now, not what it Especially once cultural was leverage, cultural. I think yeah. So that everyone's appealing to the Bible in a way that if you go to the second century, I think you're you're not going to find an empire. No, you're not going to you're not going to hear the <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the not the not, the emperor is not going to have propaganda for using Christianity as 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 as, a, as, a, as an authoritarian authoritarian source. So what you have so that, so there's a difference there because we tend to say, oh, look what we've nostalgically looking at the past. Say, well. Oh, we just have no kind of influence. And I just think if you step back and you compare us to the second century, well, we have a lot more than the second century. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and and then you and then you and then you kind of fast forward to Augustine's day. Well, Augustine, he's in this unique spot where for the first time, as far as I can tell, Christianity has risen enough, has gotten has enough now institutional power right. to be accused by the pagans. Right. As being the big civic problem. Now they could convince. They could say that's more of your Charles Taylor yes. subtraction story. This just, uh, of of Christianity. Just, we got to get rid of this Christianity to save the empire. Well, it's it, it's not going to work. It's, it's not going to work for community. This yeah. is the problem that we have to stamp out. Now they're they're telling their nostalgic story about you know make making Rome great again. Right. Uh, let's go back to the pagan way. <clears throat> And so he's Augustine, and this is City of God. So this takes us to the City of God. He's having to respond to this, um, to these pagans now who are coming into North Africa, who are, you know, the 
the, the smart guys, the, the, the intellects who are coming in North Africa and saying Christianity is the problem. At, not just on an individual level. Not only is it not good for you, it's not good for society. Yeah. And that is what prompts uh, the city of God. So, so my argument is, is that it had, it had gotten big enough that there's, there's certain parallels that you just don't have in the second century yeah. because it's more established. And so, and, and so that, that's kind of, it's not to say we can't learn anything from the second century, but it also, my, part of my concerns is, you know, there's just some ways in the second century, it does, doesn't map on. I mean, we're, we're not in the West experiencing the type of persecution as far as I can tell that they, they were. Yeah. So those are not some of the concerns I have. All right. I'm back on your side. I'm back on the fourth and early fifth centuries now. So we're, we're good. <laughs> we can go on with this. <laughs> we, we might be able to. I think I just, I think, I think that was just like the confession of a good podcaster. He's like, let's move on to the next question. You're boring our listeners with this. It's all good. So you talked to, speaking of changing the mind, um, Augustine's views of the Roman Empire yeah. changed over time. It's something that I learned from you guys in this book. And that, led up to his more mature reflections that we're referring to here in City of God. So what do we learn from his evolution in his views of the Roman Empire? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that we picked up on, and again, other scholars have picked this up and have, have monographs on it, is that he's, he's just becoming more realistic. Um, where you have earlier with Eusebian, yeah. th- there's very much this narrative of, Rome as the internal eternal city that's combined with Christianity. Right. And now I think we can be um, sym- sympathetic of why people would come to that. Here you have Jesus giving this promise in the Gospels that the kingdom's like the, like a mustard seed and it's going to grow up. And so they're being persecuted and they have the story of the martyrs and they're saying, yeah, Jesus said that this was going to be the biggest tree in the garden and it doesn't seem so. And then Constantine's converted, <laughs> then all of a sudden it's like, oh yes, all of this is coming true. So I think we can be sympathetic to why they saw this tight kind of wedding of the empire right. and Christianity. But Augustine seems seems to be empathetic to that, but but he grows more realistic as he gets older about um about, well, the Roman Empire, <laughs> right, yeah. and about this kind of height wedding of the two, and he right. and he sees and he wants to make clear that the Roman Empire is just like any, in some sense, is like any other empire, right. and 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 it's you know if it falls, the kingdom of God will still stand. Yeah. Um, and I I think there's some applications in the book. We we kind of um, we weren't always drawing on that point, but I think if you're asking me now, what are some things i think a kind of non-anxious presence as in american culture as things are changing to say like we can also look around the world and see how the kingdom is the lord's still working and the kingdom is is expanding in so many ways and he doesn't need the american empire to last forever for the kingdom to continue to yes and and certainly i don't want the the barbarians to come <laughs> and so I a lot can, of bad things happen. I, yeah. We're not uh, a kind of relishing in persecution, certainly not. But at the same time, this confidence that um, Christ will build His church, and um, and so we don't have to fear that. And then I think it also gives us a kind of position, and this is a remarkable thing about City of God, where we we can stand back and we can critique the empire, 
and still um and still also recognize that there's you know the kind of worldly peace is still a kind of good peace that we want to operate in and that still you love your neighbors <laughs> that's right that's right and so and even serve within it and and so well. and so with that it gives us a position i think that can stand back and critique and yet still serve and yeah. care for people in it um and we see augustine doing this in his own ministry in in various different ways well you also mentioned here that augustine's you alluded to this earlier that Augustine was responding to the accusation that Christianity and Jesus Sermon on the Mount in particular just doesn't work yeah. in public life, that it's impractical. That's fascinating. Going back to my undergraduate years, my Russian literature professor said the same thing. Um, Tolstoy's conversions that he talked about in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Mm -hmm. In fact, my professor said they are the only genuine conversions in all of literature. Tolstoy's uh, conversions in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. But he says, but as we all know, they're too good to be true. You just can't live with that kind of benevolent love or that mm. disinterested Christ-like love in real life. So how did Augustine defend the faith against this kind of charge? Well, on one level, um, let me give you his kind of macro strategy. So that is exactly the charge that prompts City of God. And I say prompts City of God because Augustine's doing a lot of things in that book. Right. But he has a very particular on the ground prompt, which is, and, and it actually mentions, like, how can you live Jesus's teachings out and actually be good uh, for Rome, for the empire, for, for the world? And Augustine takes, uh, first thing he does is he says, okay, well, let's step inside the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, let's step inside, and the parallel for us would be, let's step inside other ways. Like, okay, what are other ways to live? What are other ways to live as a neighbor? And how is that going to work out? And for him, he uses their authorities, their historians, to show actually that, and he, he offers a deflationary account of, it's, it's actually the Roman Empire, although we can point to some things that have happened, it's full of violence. <laughs> It's it's even the virtues, he says, this is a tradition in Augustine scholarship, that the virtues were actually splendid vices, is, mm. is the way later scholars would kind of tag that. And what he's saying is that even the kind of even the kind of things that grew within the empire that is amazing were, were actually um they were actually motivated by a kind of glory, a sense yeah. of self-glory or protect just protection like you know the wolf's at the gate so you better you better have some real discipline here right and so he's stepping in and not only giving a moral psychological kind of critique yeah. of motivations but he's showing how in times of peace this turned into that kind of decadence in times so he's showing kind of the weak points from within their own um history Inside out apologetics. Inside out. And then he <laughs> steps in, and this is what philosophers call an imminent critique. And then he steps in and he says, he narrates the Christian story. And he says, actually, Christianity gives gives an individual a way to live that doesn't idolize the earthly cities. And in, and because they don't, they're actually better servants of it. Um, they they step in and live with the grain of the universe, which is to worship God above all things. And then therefore that actually makes you someone who has the capability to sacrifice yeah. for your neighbor um, and uh, to even perhaps die for your neighbor. 
And so he, he's offering this. It's not, a, it's not a cheap, easy kind of glib response, right? 22 books, uh, lots of words. <laughs> he's doing lots of different things, quite a project. But that's his overall approach to step inside, to critique from the inside, and to, and to say, well, this is how actually Christianity and the teachings of Jesus actually... Now, of course, as we know, he has to... He has to develop things like just war theory, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, if Christians have a say in how the right. empire is going to go, then what do we do when we have to defend ourselves? So all of these things, of course, are having to be developed because of right. because all of a sudden Christianity, Christians do have a place at the table yeah. and even at times their leaders at the table. So he's having at that point to develop, you know, some some political fall. And, and another example yeah. of the fourth, fifth century dynamic versus the second. Mm -hmm. Much more similar for us that we do have a say in it, even just as voters or as people who can speak out about these things versus in the second century. Nobody's listening yeah. to what the Christians are saying at a macro level. At a micro level, there's a lot of people listening and, and looking at what they're doing in there. But that's another good explanation for how those are different. Um, here's a point in the book that for you guys, a book that I really want to mm -hmm. drill on a little bit. You write this, our late modern communities have been inhaling ways of thinking, believing, and living, not by way of logical syllogisms or analytic argument, but through the oxygen given off by stories, symbols, and artifacts that have made Christianity seem not only irrational, but oppressive and dangerous. Okay. So again, I think a lot of people would recognize that even up to our very moment, of time, if they go on, you know, the site formerly known as Twitter or yeah. anything like that, that this sounds like a very 2023 late modern critique. Yet the whole premise of your book is that we can learn from Augustine yeah. <laughs> on this. How? Yeah. Well, Augustine doesn't refer to Charles Taylor <laughs> or social imaginaries <laughs> anywhere. In I think there. Charles Taylor probably <laughs> learned a thing or two from Augustine. But, um, <laughs> But he does know a thing about rhetoric, about persuasion, um, and he knows as a pastor, and this is often what well, has sometimes gotten missed, missed is that Augustine is, first off, a pastor, uh, not first a philosopher yeah. or even a theologian. He's, well, he's a bishop, right? And he has a, he's a congregation in Hippo. So he's very much on the ground in his life. You see it. I was just reading I was, for another project. I was reading Brown's. Um, biography, rereading it, and you just see he's so taxed by the everyday. He's he's writing something, and then he gets he gets you know three letters, and somebody visits him about this problem, this problem. He has to put that project down, and he's got to address this. Yeah. And so he's very much on the ground in a way that, um, in a way that he's sensitive to how normal people think and what's going to persuade them. And so when he when he's getting these objections uh, about Christianity that provoke city of God, in order to appeal, he actually part of the way he frames it is he frames it by alluding and having echoes throughout to Virgil's Aeneid. Because okay. Aeneid was was this way that educated children would learn to read, okay. reading Virgil. And so they, the way they imagined the world and Roman Empire and Roman glory and living from Rome was so formed by Virgil. It, it, in the book, we draw a parallel here, and don't laugh, but to Disney. Yeah, sure. 
because we don't we, we don't I mean th- those are the kind of epics that we grew up with and it forms our imagination and so when he's having to persuade he's going to step inside their social imagination before anyone had coined that term right. and he's going to say yes and no yes you're after a kind of peace so he 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 will quote them throughout you're after this kind of peace but it's not found there like that's going to lead to violence that's going to lead to lust of domination and so for augustine to step inside poetry and we know from confessions that virgil made him weep as he was as a as a as a uh, as a teenage teenager reading and in his roman education he would he loved virgil but then he he went to he saw the problems with living according to that script so um so I think we see a model here, whereas, um, and he understands the human predicament in ways, and he incorporates that into his apologetic. I recently, in our book, we cite a major apologist who says this, this new thing that Francis Schaeffer was doing, where he, he's actually starting with the human predicament and then making an argument based out of that is, well, as I just said, it's a, it's a relatively new thing. <laughs> And we show, hopefully convincing in the book, this isn't a new thing. Right. This is what Augustine was doing all along. In fact, the new thing is when you take away the human predicament and you get into a theoretical exercise that doesn't touch the gut of who we are, the core of who we are as humans. And this is what Augustine does so well, where he takes the social imaginary and then he appeals to these deeper longings that they have. So, I mean, Tim Keller didn't invent this kind of stuff. I guess that's one way to put this for 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 the listeners on this podcast. You see it within the tradition. Uh, Augustine's doing it differently, of course. People are going to develop this in different ways, but this is deep within the tradition. Um, but Keller probably would have seen it first in Schaefer, or yeah. in Rookmacher, or mm-hmm. others, or Rookmaker in, the, in that in that early area there. So basically what you're trying to say is that all of apologetics is a footnote on Augustine. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. No, <laughs> well, of course it's not. I mean, um, the way we put it in the book is there Augustine. Augustine's the most influential Western theologian, right? And so, you know, we see things are downstream. Aquinas is Augustinian. And you have what what we would say is people picking up and kind of developing the seeds of Augustine in certain directions, but then not in others. Yeah. And so our book is not about negating the great work that's been done in the last hundred years in in Western apologetics. Ours is about saying, hey, what else can we retrieve? There's parts of it that have already been retrieved. Um, you see Augustine making histor- a kind of historical argument for the resurrection, uh, cause and effect with the building of the church and how could we get here except for the resurrection? Now, you see him making a case in City of God based on miracles. So I say grab Craig Keener's book on miracles because because right. he's doing something like that in his ancient context. So it's not that it's not that we haven't picked up on Augustine already. It's that we haven't picked up the whole Augustine. And he he's also doing some other things that we can develop. And that's what we're trying to bring all of that forward in the book. Well, we're going to get to surprise by doubt here next. But I want to read this quote from the Augustine Way. You're right. Today, the church remains, having outlasted its rivals from the ancient world, as God's apologetic community called to persuade others of this true happiness and hope and to raise up apologists who know how to use the things of the world 
both joys and pains, beauty and beastliness, design and disorder, refracted through the light of the cross and resurrection to display the manifold wisdom of God. That's beautiful. That's good stuff there. Um, let's turn to then Surprised by Tao here, how disillusionment can invite us into a deeper faith. Again, written with your friend Jack Carson, a shorter book. I think a book that's more designed in some ways more broadly. Yeah. Um, doesn't have quite the same attic or same um, academic overtones. So let's start with one of the things I've already seen picked up in people's reviews of the book and interactions with the book. The concept of attic Christianity. Explain the concept of attic Christianity. A-T-T-I-C. Attic Christianity from Surprise by Doubt. Yeah. Well, if you if you know your Lewis, you know we're already playing off Surprised by Joy. And uh and we're also with this attic Christianity playing off one of Lewis's famous metaphors. Where in in near Christianity, he he speaks about trying to get people who are skeptics to come into the hallway of the house of Christianity. And he says he's not trying to get them in a particular room, but he's trying to get them into the hallway and then and then encourages them, of course, not to stay in the hallway, which there's probably could be a whole podcast on that. We need, you know, and, and the, the different traditions and the importance of embracing uh, one of uh, a tradition and, and, and living there. But but our book is asking a using that metaphor, but asking a different question. Our question is, what happens if you've grown up in the house, but you've grown up in the attic of the house with very little kind of awareness of what we call main floor ancient Christianity, Um, but a kind of the attic in the way we are using that metaphor is a kind of reactionary space that's reacting at least this version of the attic is reacting against various modern pressures, which are really challenges and are understandable why an attic would be built. So it's things like the pluralism uh, and the fragility that modern pluralism brings to young people and to people with their faith. Um, And so one of the reactions to that is to kind of give either a kind of authoritarianism, (laughs) we'll just believe this, or a kind, yeah. or a kind of to sell a kind of apologetic certainty. Like if you just look at the evidence, then like you're just clearly not looking at the evidence if you don't believe this because it's just straightforward and it's there. And so it's a kind of over realized apologetic that says we're going to solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this, if you still have, you know, you know, I think now we're trying to have to, we're more apologists are reckoning with this. But um, we kind of created this structure that gives an air of kind of triumphalistic posture towards evidences and oversold how much it could achieve. It's also we've responded to the moral decadence in our community with kind of different kind of structures to help respond to that in the attic. For instance, like purity culture, which there is there needs to be response to, to moral decadence in our culture for sure. But what created, and many authors are pointing this out, is a kind of unhealthy purity culture. We need to be pure as Christians. That's called the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that we kind of elevate a kind of particular way to date and court and a particular way to dress as the kind of most important thing. As the solution. As, okay. Yeah. Um, Prescribing a method that will guarantee service. And, and so, so that, yeah, and then you'll have a happy marriage right. and all this will fall into place. 
And then, and then you have anti-intellectualism that kind of, as we step away from culture because of the moral decadence, and so an anti-intellectualism develops, and our response to that is often a kind of strong rationalism or a kind of quasi-intellectualism, and then you realize, and then these young people are realizing, oh, there's actually smart people when they kind of eventually peer out over the attic walls that are nice, that in many ways are ethical. Uh, and are really smart. <laughs> They're not just dummies. And they've seen the evidence, <laughs> but they don't agree. Yeah, and uh, and so all of a sudden they feel this overwhelming fragility. And if you were told all your life that, well, if you just look at it, you 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 can be certain, and then you aren't certain, then it feels like almost the this just even the doubt becomes evidence for Christianity not being true because you should be able to reach the certainty. And so. It creates this kind of stifling environment and people eventually look out the window and they say, we want to jump. And I think uh, as some of our colleagues and friends have written, this is a huge problem <laughs> with deconstruction, de-churching, all these things going on. Our book is simply saying, okay, before you do that, let's do two things before you jump. Number one we need to look out and say, where are you jumping into? Because we all have to live somewhere. So let's be just as critical as these spaces that, that look so good, at least from the attic kind of window. And in defense of the people thinking about jumping, I, I, I can understand if they're living their life kind of in this attic and their posture's been over, it grows very uncomfortable. You can look out the window and think, oh, that looks pretty good. But before you do that, let's examine that those different rooms outside the house closely. And then let's also, if you still decide to leave, at least come downstairs first and explore the main floor of the Christian house. And then if you still want to leave, go out the main. At least you've gone through that. Don't um, jump out the attic. Don't jump out of the attic. Be, be realistic about what's outside the attic. Um, and then also, and, and admit Although they might have some strengths in your mind, you need to be willing to admit that they, they probably have some weaknesses too um, and explore those weaknesses and then come downstairs. Because if you've grown up in adding Christianity, what history, the great tradition of Christianity provides is it provides us with people who have yes doubted, but they've inhabited Christianity in a different way than you've inhabited your version or your parents' version or your community's version of Christianity all your life. So try that out first. Um, that's what in, in different ways Jack and I have both done, and we're still in the house. <laughs> uh, and I think there's uh, lots of other people who've done the same thing. I was just speaking on Friday night, talking with a dad uh, whose teenagers sound especially uh, precocious uh, with a lot of these questions. And the first place I went with him was to the, well, you, your children have been raised to consider very carefully the objections to Christianity, but they don't seem sophisticated enough yet to be able to consider what the alternatives are. Mm -hmm. And so you might think, well, Christianity has a big problem with evil until you've actually studied all the different answers to the problem mm -hmm. of evil and realized, well, you know, to whom else are we supposed to go? Because you have the words of yeah. eternal life, Jesus. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. Doubt your doubts. If you don't, if you don't mind us sitting here for a second, is that that's a great example because 
The apologetic overread says, oh, problem of evil, real easy. Let me give you the answer to that. Yeah. To which me as an apologist, I put my, you know, I bury my, my, my head in my hands at that point. If I'm in the, Here if I'm in the, will defense, <laughs> like it's going to, it's going to, it's going to solve everything. It's going to solve your problems. Now, I think there's something to the free will defense. I just want to add this, but Plantiga himself says, and he, okay, Alvin Plantiga, champion of the free will defense within the reformed tradition. I'll let, I'll let you guys kind of read, re- read, read up on that more. <laughs> but Plantiga, who I love, I mean, he says, uh, uh, he has said, I don't think the free will defense or any defense completely solves the problem of evil. He, so Plantinga doesn't yeah. actually argue that. It's a response. And I, we have responses as Christians. But what often happens is if we're over triumphalistic about our answers to some of these things, then and we give glib answers, then people eventually grow out of those. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, well, that didn't really solve this and this. And so I think saying that there's a response and there's there's a way to respond to this uh, that many of listeners probably have heard, which is, I mean, the approach I take is more of a skeptical theist approach, which is to say, um, if there is a God, then why would we think a God, like anything described in the, in the Bible, why would we think we would have uh, the prerogatives or the sight to see exactly all the reasons for evil um and so but the bible does give us various different responses of why sometimes evil happens but if you keep pushing that question back pushing it back pushing it back pushing it back there is a mystery there that augustine realized and but christianity does give us a way to respond um to evil to walk with god (laughs) in the midst of it and um there is this thing called lament. <laughs> and so this it's this posture of lamenting and then responding to evil in a way as, of course, Lewis understood and what you were alluding to before, C.S. Lewis understood as an atheist, his problem was the evil in the world, but then he realized he had no standard by which to even call something evil. Yeah. Um, and it's, so It's a problem of good. Yeah, it's a problem of good. And so, but that doesn't, I think we need to be honest, that's a response and that's, I think that's helpful, but it doesn't solve everything. Somebody with this kind of over-rationalistic posture wants. Yeah. And so if we walk into that in conversations with saying, oh, that's really easy, there's a lot of questions that they're going to bring up that, of course, <laughs> that they might be wanting but that we don't have. And so so it's important to, to flag that at the beginning. And so I, I do think I hopefully by bringing this example up, uh, Everybody listening will kind of see there there is actually a difference <laughs> on how to approach this, uh, even though we're using we're, we're both using Plantinga if you're more traditionalist, yeah. but but then we're actually kind of uh, more modest about what we think that argument can achieve. Yeah. So to boil that down, if you're <laughs> if you're watching, you're listening, you're a you're a parent, you're a, um, a friend, young or old, with people who are working through these doubts. I think. I know when I'm teaching on cultural apologetics here at Beeson, I'm training future pastors and also future and current parents as well. I often tell them that trying to over-explain everything that happens, including in Christianity, is one of the worst things you can do as a parent or as a pastor. 
to promise people certain levels of understanding or certainty that are not promised in Scripture by God himself Mm -hmm. in there. He promises that we can trust him, that we can walk with him, that he loves us in all things, that he loves the world, um, that he created this world, and that he's redeeming the world, and that Jesus is coming again. These are all sure promises that we have, but they're not explanations for everything that happens. Yeah. Um, we should see that that's obvious from the book of Job and from Ecclesiastes and from all sorts of things. But I think we do want, whether that's a modernist mindset, I'm not really sure. But yeah. We really do want, I think what, what Tim Keller was saying is that it's actually a problem that's developed in a, in a late modern age. Like our problems have become worse because we we expect all these answers from life and from the world and from God that previous generations did not yeah. expect to get. And so suffering was difficult for them, but not as difficult existentially for them as it was for as it is for us, because we think it's an interruption of, of a life and a world that were promised, which is obviously not what the Bible says. Yeah. Yeah. It's not true in the end. And I think he's I think Keller, I think Tim was picking this up from Taylor, who's yeah. in who's narrating this in Secular Age and in yeah. The Lisbon earthquakes and yeah. the, this turn in the middle of the 18th century to Voltaire to theodicies, yeah, right. where we're trying to justify right. and fully explain all the ways of God. Not that certain forms of theodicy aren't helpful, right. but so I, I there, but I there is something important there that I, I want to back up to, and that's what Taylor is getting at, and what and what Tim was drawing upon is this kind of different way to attend to the world a different posture that that requires a certain amount of humility um and so this is one of the things that we're trying to do both in the augustine way show and this is augustine who was really pushing on humility but in a way that i'm discussing this with somebody who's doubting is the first thing we need to do is um I need to exhibit some humility, but I also want to encourage that on their behalf yeah. and help them see that these demands for everything to get fully explained um, in ways it, that we will accept. Yeah, yeah, is is a kind of um, is a kind of way to attend to the world in a way that isn't actually very, um, which is very modern. Which and if you're Western, because it's the centering of the self. And if you're only going to, uh, you know, accept things with with that kind of rationality, that kind of hard rationalities, you'll only get what um, Alistair McGrath calls shallow truths. Because there's a lot of things that you're taking for granted because you're part of these late modern scripts that, and Tom Holland talks about this, that he's a believer in all these things. Might not be a Christian yet, you know, he says, but he says... I'm a believer in all these things like human rights and justice. And I'm a, I'm a heart. I mean, I'm very much a believer in those things, but I can't prove them. And I think, so there's a kind of humility that, that we need to encourage rather than just step in and say, I'm going to argue kind of uh, on, on, on your level here. We need to come in and say, well, actually we're all believing to understand. We're all loving something. And this is where, again, to go back to Augustine, the kind of it's not it's not anti-rational by any means, but it's being rational about our rationality and that what that means. And you can read this in Jonathan Haidt. You can read this in Ian McGilchrist. The list goes on. P. 
people who aren't Christians are saying similar things. We need to become more rational about our rationality and and and, and recognize that we're all believing to understand. Yeah. And that that some trying to create a, a posture about who we are as humans, what we can know, what we can't know. And then the turn we make in the book, and I'm not sure how this is sounding. It's really not as academic and heady maybe as I'm making it in this podcast. <laughs> but but then we we bring in Pascal to say we're all having to make certain wagers. Yeah. And not only are we wagering on do we believe in God, but we're even wagering on different types of rationality. And so we're asking the question in the book is, well, what's really rational to wager in? Let's take in everything we know about human nature. Let's take everything in. No, let's not leave in, out any evidence. Let's bring it all to the table. Right. But that that's also includes the profoundly existential reasons yeah. as Pascal, because that's what it, part of what it means to be human, to love, to have a moral code, um, to seek peace. And let's bring all of this information on the table and then compare and see how the Christian story actually fits alongside that. I think a way of, of summarizing so much of this, Josh, is that when you grow up in the attic or even in the upper rooms of the house sometimes, especially when you're a young adult and especially when you're working with your children or you're somebody in college ministry or youth ministry or something like that, you're dealing with people who in a pluralistic environment have learned enough to be able to critique what they inherit. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've learned enough to know that their parents might be really bad people because of the way they vote. You know, just who knows, all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But but they don't, they've not lived the other life. I think that's one of the aspects of Augustine's biography that stands out, that he had lived two other lives. Yeah. He lived the licentious life, and he lived the Manichaean mm -hmm. life. He got to be, to borrow again from, from Jesus here in the parables, he lived, get to be both brothers, right? That'd be the younger brother, the older brother in there, and realized they're not, both of them fall short in there, but, but grace is the way mm -hmm. in there. That's what you show in there. And so I think that's the sort of non-anxious posture, again, that you're talking about, to recognize that part of the maturation process is that we react against what we know. We don't yet know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's also an element here of for pastors and parents and others to play the long game of mm -hmm. you don't know how this story is going to go. Augustine's story was was looking pretty bad for his mother yeah. <laughs> and her faithful prayers for Monica's prayers for a long time mm -hmm. before look how it ended in yeah. there. And so I think that's one of the most helpful postures we can adopt there's as a, Christian yeah. teachers and, and leaders and parents. There's this great scene in Monica, who is this, you know, ancient helicopter mom, you know, <laughs> before True. before I wrote, Con, <laughs> you know, his book on coddling of right. the American mind. But she's, yeah. this, you know, bulldozer parent if there ever was one. And so she's trying to figure this out as probably parents listening to this podcast is how do I save my son? Who's going with these crazy manichees? What do I do? And so she finds a priest who used to be a manichee, and she comes to him and she's explaining to him what happens. And she wants the priest to go talk to Augustine, but it seems the priest recognizes that he's not ready. He's got too much pride, and he says to her, um, "Oh, I'm going to mess up the quote, but he says basically, uh, the child, the son of these tears will not perish." 
Now, maybe there's, you know, hyperbole there. I don't want to claim a kind of health, wealth, gospel if you just pray enough, but there's something to the fervent prayers that, that, that has to become part of the first place we go, the first place and last place we go. And I think we want answers. We want to save our kids. We want to save the next generation. And that's going to start and that's going to end with prayer. Um, and to, to see that, that the spirit has to work and humble. And yes, he can use our arguments. He can use our persuasion. But this isn't simply, uh, you know, persuading them who to vote for. This, this is um, bowing the knee to the king of the universe and the weightiness that comes with that, but also our dependence on God um, in the apologetic task and the task of caring for people who are doubting. It's a good place to end. I want to share this quote again from Surprised by Doubt from Josh and Josh Chatreau and Jack Carson. Um, this quote, I just love it. We intuitively live like our lives really matter. We all search for, we all search for beauty. We all want to love and be loved. And ever since the light of Jesus's moral revolution penetrated into the deepest parts of our culture, it has seemed unnatural and difficult to revert back to a previous time and deny the aspirations that have led to the ideals of human rights and universal benevolence. We desire justice, and we sense that each person's life is sacred. Grounded in a historical claim and centered on a person, Christianity affirms, explains, and provides motivation to act on the deepest human ideals. Where else can you find a story that does all that? Great quote there. A couple product placements in here. We referred a number of times to Peter Brown's biography mm -hmm. of Augustine. Everybody, if you haven't read it, they need to go read it. It is a model, and I. Just, I don't think I realized this the other day. He was in his 20s, I think, when he wrote that. Uh, yeah, like that. I think uh, maybe early 30s. Maybe we early we 30s. need to look that up. Don't quote, okay, but yeah, he don't was, quote us on that. Maybe when young, he finished. Amazing. Younger than us. And he just, <laughs> he just wrote his uh, autobiography, too. Oh, yes, yeah, right. So that's a, I haven't read it yet. Amazing. But I've heard great things. But that is, even if you're not the, I remember sometimes these podcasts, I think I just want to make them helpful. I remember when I was young. I would ask older Christians just, what are some really great Christian biographies? And two of the recommendations I got, one was Roland Bainton's on Martin Luther, mm -hmm. and then uh, Hugo Obermann as well, Hugo Obermann on Luther, but then also um, Peter Brown on Augustine. And those really changed, I think, a lot of the course of my life, those recommendations. So those are good places to go after you've read these books. Um, and then also, if you're enjoying this podcast, enjoying Gospel Bound in general, You'll definitely appreciate our colleagues at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, Andrew Wilson and Glenn Scrivener, and their podcast, Post-Christianity? Because it deals with a lot of the questions that we're talking about here of what does it mean to be post-Christian and yet in ways that are inescapably Christian in mm -hmm. their understandings. So people can go check that out as well. And um, if you enjoyed learning from Josh um, on this podcast, We'd love for you to study evangelism and cultural uh, engagement with Josh at Beeson Divinity School, Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And I'll also give a, thank, a special shout out to Rob Willis and his team for their help in recording and, and producing today. Josh, thanks for these books, Surprised by Doubt, and Augustine Wayne. Thanks for joining thanks, me. Thanks, Colin.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.